That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we can discussion current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily email newsletter or download the handy app to keep current in just a few minutes a day with the latest business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee by persecuted cult leader, I mean, um, new religious movement leader, Jeremy Goldcorn, <laughs> who fled China in 2015. Peace unto you, O holy Jeremy. <laughs> Get on with it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, okay. So, you know, Jeremy, we've both remarked on the fact that there just aren't a lot of English-language, China-related podcasts out there. But luckily, the ones that are out there, the ones that are all available are pretty good. I mean, there's old Laszlo Montgomery with his excellent China history podcast. And uh, back in our old stomping ground in Beijing, Jeremiah Jenny and James Palmer and their Barbarians at the Gate off to a very promising start. And that's a history. That's a podcast mainly about Chinese history, right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a good one. It's it's quite smart. And Paul Henley at the Carnegie Center is still cranking out these very informative conversations with very interesting guests, often quite high-ranking in the world of diplomacy. Uh, but there's only one podcaster who's working in the China beat who's actually done more shows than we have. Uh, indeed, <laughs> has, has easily read more books in preparation for said shows than both of us combined. And she still has a tenured gig in the history department of a major university to boot. I am speaking, of course, of Carla Nappi, whose CV, I should warn you, you must under no circumstances glimpse if you are anyone whose self-esteem is feeling at all wobbly. So Carla is assistant professor at the history department at the University of British Columbia, and she still somehow finds time to host what I think is the most penetrating, in-depth conversations out there uh, with the authors of books about China and more broadly on East Asian studies uh, at the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. She also podcasts at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. And speaking of books, she has one of her own, which we'll be talking about. It's called The Monkey and the Ink Pot, and it's about the Ming Dynasty doctor, herbalist, natural scientist, general polymath Li Shijin, who is, uh, of course, known for his Materia Medica, his Ben Sao Gang Mu, with her immensely wide range of interests and her very unconventional approach to scholarship. Carla is easily one of the most interesting figures in North American sinology <laughs> these days. Uh, no modesty there, Carla. It's true. And so we're delighted <laughs> that you could join us today from Vancouver. Carla, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I'm really delighted to be here with you guys. But because you're Canadian, we have to start with a background check. So, oh, I'm uh, not Canadian. <laughs> I'm not <American>. Canadian. <laughs> Honorary Canadian. Even worse. All right, Carla, can you tell us how you got interested in the history of science in China in particular? Sure. This was sort of a winding um, and completely unreasonable seeming road. Um, so basically, as a kid, um, I... Uh, 
went to geek camp and took a course in paleobiology in geek camp um, as a kind of a there, high school such student. A, there is such a thing, geek camp. There is such a thing, oh, okay. uh, geek camp. Um, so I went to geek camp, uh, took this course in paleobiology, thought, yes, this is what I'm going to do with my life, went to college. I got to Harvard and I was a public school kid, first generation college student, and I and I saw you could take Chinese. And I was like, this is awesome. Why isn't everyone taking Chinese? I am going to take <laughs> Chinese. And so um, there I was in college doing this degree in paleobiology, thinking I was going to be a paleontologist, taking Chinese for no good reason at all. Um, realized at some point that I really did not love lab work. Okay, I did huh. not love sitting there measuring the little insides of gastropods and stuff. So I had a really um, great mentor when I was at the Smithsonian for a summer doing fossil stuff who kind of took me into his office and was like, look, all right, so you don't love lab work. It's okay. I got something to show you. And he pulls this like hot pink garish colored book off his office shelf and gives it to me. And it turns out to be this horrible science fiction novel written by some like majorly famous evolutionary biologist. So George Gaylord Simpson wrote this horrible, horrible sci-fi novel called The Dechronization of Sam Magruder, which was like a story about some guy who gets drunk and goes back in time to walk with the dinosaurs, whatever. Anyway, light bulbs went off, um, realized that you could actually do history of science um, and, and not terrible actually- fiction. Exactly. <laughs> and there were some really cool things that scientists were doing that were super weird. Long story short, I got interested in the connection between language and the life sciences. I had this like totally um, irrationally gotten Chinese language background and decided, hey, why don't I put these two things together? Um, hey, you so, studied yeah. with Stephen Jay Gould, didn't you? I did. He was my thesis advisor, and I worked so in So you were like lab. working on the Burgess Shale and stuff like that? I was. Actually, when I was at the Smithsonian, too, I was working on the Burgess Shale, and that's what um, I thought I was going to write my thesis on. So yeah, I was. Told, that's what got me hooked in the first place, was um, the wacky, wacky Burgess Shale. I just totally dug it. What is it? Can you explain what it is? Yeah, so the Burgess Shale represents a Precambrian group, so before the Cambrian, group of um, invertebrates who were just shaped in totally wacky ways that are totally unlike the body plans of most animals that exist today. So it's like, an argument look, for punctuated equilibrium, right? It's, well, it, it can be, right? It can be. But I was really interested in the possibility of thinking about what life could have been like, uh-huh. right? And just the contingency of life, the, the sheer chance that results in us being who we are and the world being shaped the way it is now. And that's kind of what brought me to history, um, is like history as a tool for thinking otherwise, that's really why I became a historian. And so I was just completely fascinated with Jeremy, does this sound familiar to you, talking about, you know, the contingency in history? And- yeah, that, that, that is one of your favorite themes. Right, uh, right, sure is. about, you know, why China doesn't share European or Western Enlightenment values. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm interested right now in, in your work in the history of science, because I, mm-hmm. I took a fleeting interest in it uh, before realizing I don't have the depth of knowledge in any of the disciplines that one would need to do serious work in that field. I mean, I don't have advanced knowledge of scientific or, or technical Chinese. In fact, I don't really have good facility with classical Chinese. I don't have more than the layman's knowledge in the natural sciences. I don't even have like adequate formal training in history. And I, I dare say that these three, these three things, at the very least, uh, need to intersect, uh, and they do so in only a very, very few in, in individuals. Let's start by talking about the state of scholarship on the history of science in China. How's the field faring? I mean, are there people carrying on the great work of Joseph Needham? 
So I think the field is really exciting and really healthy right now. And part of that has to do with the range of kinds of work and kinds of projects that a lot of, especially younger scholars coming up into the field are doing. I think in general, the field has moved away from, while still recognizing the significance and the importance and the fundamental interest of the work that Joseph Needham did, right? I mean, I don't think any of us would be doing what we're doing now without that um, moment in the field, I think increasingly people are moving away from the kind of civilizational approach um, or, uh. so, or, you know, like thinking of China as a massive civilization um, and the kinds of questions Needham was asking and more and more thinking about China as involving lots of different kinds of people doing different kinds of things in different kinds of languages. And there's a real plurality coming into the sorts of questions people are asking and, and who they're looking at to answer those questions. So, you know, Tibetans are relevant to the history of science, Manchus sure. and Mongolians, and these weren't the sorts of uh, fields or topics that Needham was interested in. So I think there's lots of really exciting work. I think we need more people working on the pre-modern. Um, most people now are still working on contemporary and modern history of science. Um, yeah, that's but, what they always say about Joe, Joe Needham, great guy, just kind of a Han chauvinist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but doing super important work and just right. a super no, like interesting guy right um but yeah i think the kinds of questions and work that people are doing right now have really moved away from the approach that needham took and i think that's a healthy thing for the field it, it allows room for more voices and more approaches and more opportunities mm. to sync up with what colleagues in other fields that are not focused on china um, are doing and to just have some really interesting interdisciplinary conversations are there a lot of people doing this i mean is it a is it becoming a a popular field of study and of those people, you know, what's the proportion in China, in mainland China and outside? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that there are a lot of people doing this right now. Um, the kind of training that you need, and I think Kaiser was alluding to this earlier on, the kind of training that you need in North America, at least, um, right? So we'll just kind of start there to really professionally do this kind of work involves training in history of science, technology, or medicine, broadly speaking, right? So you need to be able to teach Darwin and Galileo and um, Hippocrates and all that stuff, as well as a formal training and really deep training in Chinese history, broadly speaking, so that you can teach survey courses from like you know, Yao to Mao, um, but also um, focused in whatever period you work on. And so the resources to do that kind of training or get that kind of training and do the kind of language work involved, you need to be in a position at a university to get that kind of training. And that's a relatively privileged position. If you're like a bright under, undergraduate out there listening to the show, mm -hmm. uh, who has her heart set on advancing the history of science in China, Mm -hmm. Should she just be prepared to spend the next 12 years in lecture halls and libraries to acquire the right <laughs> skills? Is that what it takes? No, I mean, no. I think um, it's hard work, but not at all. And I think some of the most exciting younger scholars coming up and at the undergraduate level, at the graduate student level right now, people have just finished, are coming from backgrounds in the sciences, in philosophy, um, who want to be doing some kind of work with science, but not again in a lab, um, who start taking 
language work, right? Start taking Chinese and then just kind of keep going. And I think this is not something that, um, it doesn't have to double, right? Or increase your time in grad school, but it does mean that the kind of person wanting to do this kind of work, um, to do it really well, I think. Um, they can't have a life outside of it. <laughs> well, well, I think um, it, it helps if you are interested in at least learning about and having conversations beyond the narrow field of Chinese studies. I think that's where the most exciting work is coming from right now. We were talking about Joseph Needham a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was, of course, the towering figure in the field. And he, he very famously posed a question you alluded to uh, that some would say is really at the heart of his best-known work, The Monumental Science and Civilization in China. Uh, mm-hmm. This Needham question, as it's come to be known, basically asks why why did scientific revolution occur in the West and not in China, the right. scientific revolution, right? Um, which had, I mean, you know, China was was very successful, I think, in 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 pioneering a lot of technologies. We're all familiar with before we had inventions and whatnot. And in up until a certain time, maybe the 16th century, was in many ways ahead of the West. Uh, my distinct sense is that this question is with us still. It's asked in one form or another all the time, despite all the the problems that have been pointed out with it. You know, this is an implicit assumption that the scientific revolution in the West was inevitable. Uh, what is your own posture? Toward the this Needham question. Yeah, um, yeah. This is um, really interesting that you're asking this because I just got back from a symposium in Minnesota where we were talking about exactly this problem. Oh, great! Um, uh, How so, timely of me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so my okay, what? what is coming out of conversations about the Needham question now, and not just among people who work on history of science in China, but also people who work on history of science in South Asia, in the Middle East, um, in uh, the Americas, broadly speaking. We're increasingly moving away from uh, positioning ourselves in the history of science related to the scientific revolution. So in a way, the scientific revolution as a moment has become so dominant in all of the conversations that we have about science studies, history of science, it's pretty much taken over. So my position right now, and I believe this is shared by other um, early modernists or people working in roughly the time period I work on, uh, roughly like the period around the scientific revolution, right? We tend to be moving away from stories that invoke the scientific revolution. So Mm. we tend to be moving away from those kinds of genealogies of science, right? And toward other kinds of stories, um, more narrowly focused on um, other kinds of documents, other kinds of voices, people who weren't the kind of um, the model of the famous, you know, white genius male scientists, but who were also doing really important and interesting work to try to understand the natural world and the place of human beings within it. So my position here is to really move away from the scientific revolution as a major point of engagement and towards other kinds of stories. And I think in general, um, this is an approach that's shared by more and more historians of early modern that's, science. That's, yeah, that's my, my, my real sense. And and yet I'm going to later on interrogate you more on this because, you know, <laughs> it's it's impossible not to to make comparisons, especially, you know, when right. the subject of one of your own uh, was, was uh, living and active at, at the same time is so many notable sort of prefigures in in the scientific revolution in Western Europe. Mm. Carla, you are pretty well known within China watching circles for the interviews you do with authors uh, about their books. So now it's time to turn the tables and ask you a little bit about your own book, (laughs) uh, which has the very lovely title, The Monkey and the Ink Pot. 
uh, and it looks closely at the Ben Cao Gangmu by Li Shizhen, which is mm-hmm. the classic of uh, Chinese medical and herbal texts. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I have to confess that neither Kaiser nor I have read the book yet, <laughs> so we are not doing you the same courtesy that you do to the scholars you interview, I'm afraid. Um, but you'll, I hope you'll forgive us. You describe the, the monkey and the ink pot as a study of belief making in early modern Chinese natural history. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you explain for a non-academic audience, so you can't use words like discourse and genealogy, um, <laughs> what exactly you mean by this and how Li Shijun's Materia Medica serves as a, a lens for this study? Uh, you know, right. Can you explain that a bit for us? I, I hope so. I will try. Um, so I got interested in this book. That's ba- the Ben Gangmu. That's basically a, a book organized by you know, plants, animals, um, human beings, stones, fire, water, types of stuff that you could use to make medicinal drugs um, to treat uh, healthy and sick bodies. And one of the things that really fascinated me about this book, and this is really what my book is about, is what it would mean for a doctor to sit down with a poem about chrysanthemums in front of him, with a story that some guy down the road had told him about when he ate chrysanthemums, um, with a medical textbook that said, you know, here's what you do to make drugs out of chrysanthemums, with his own experience going down to the local bar and asking for like chrysanthemum liquor to test out whether it really had the effects people told him. And to take all of these very different kinds of evidence and somehow negotiate among them to decide, I mean, life or death potentially, right? Uh, Issues, questions of, I have a sick patient. Do I give this person this particular chrysanthemum-based drug or not? And so I became just really interested in the question of, like, how did somebody sit down and make these decisions and compare a poem to a medical recipe and decide that those were like functionally the same kind or like, you know, comparable kinds of information to use to decide how to prescribe drugs. So the book is basically at its root about that. Um, It's about how, you know, a doctor and people who he was in conversation with both at his own, um, in his own period, and also uh, people whose work um, is based on his work and who, um, inspired his own work as well, how they were making these kinds of decisions. Um, So that's what the book is about. And I'm still really interested in questions of how people make decisions about what to do with their own and other people's bodies um, when it comes to putting things into them or taking things out of them. That is a fascinating approach. And it's actually kind of coded into the title of the book, which I understand you took from a, a bestiary by by the uh, Latin American poet Borges, right? Yeah, so I'm a super fan of Borges. Um, and Borges has this, he has this story called uh, The Monkey of the Ink Pot. And the story, um, it, very briefly put, it's basically just a story about a monkey who sits on a scholar's desk, watches the scholar do the scholar's thing, waits for the scholar to leave, and then kind of gently goes over, drinks all the ink out of the ink pot, and then goes back and sits like, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, he totally came. missed missed the whole point of the inkwell monkey. <laughs> as I, when I encountered the title, I was I was curious as to, you know, what it could have to do with the ph- Chinese pharmacopoeia or with Li mm-hmm. Jin, but I, I had always assumed that ink monkeys were a real thing because my dad talked about them all the time oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean so i mean at least from my memory it, it, it sounded like there there was one at my grandfather's desk busily you know so what they do is they <laughs> grind they take the ink stick and, and they grind it into that's their job and they, they they're mm-hmm. supposed to to grind ink for you 
in the inkwell. Oh, well. so that was then, totally not what Borges thought it was. Right, so right, this right. Is awesome here. But they're rewarded by being able to drink just a little bit of the ink that's remaining. And oh. my, my, my father always you know, used to say, you can't give it too much water. You just got to give it just that little bit of ink that's left after you're done. Or else they get really big and they can't sit on the, the desk and, and grind ink quietly like they're supposed to. Anyway, that whole thing has sent me scurrying because, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm your, your, your book is telling me that these things were sort of mythical. And I, it was kind of disappointing <laughs> to me. But I started looking around and my wife found this post on, on Dobar, uh, which quoted really extensively from this text from the Qing dynasty uh, mm-hmm. by this guy named Qing Liang Daoren. Uh, from Guangxi province, and, and and he he seems to believe that they were real and that they actually would not only grind ink for you, but they would weed your garden and they'd eat harmful pests and, um, you know, <laughs> so you never actually. Uh, I wonder, uh, you weren't curious about whether they actually existed. Well, I, d- I mean, it's not that I'm not curious, but the kind of question of whether something actually existed or not is actually not a question that tends to motivate me, right? I mean, this comes yeah, up a so lot. That um, says something about your basis of evidence. Oh. T- <laughs> totally. I, absolutely. I'm, I'm actually, I'm really interested in trying to use my work and my like time as a human being in the world to expand what I can imagine as possible or real or existing. So the question of and, you know, I get this all the time as somebody who works on the history of Chinese medicine. Like, did it actually work, right? Or were there actually dragons? I have a whole section in the book that talks about uses of dragon parts and dragon bones. Like, well, did were they actually real? And my approach to this is, you know, if it's real um, in the minds and histories and stories of people who are engaging it, that's real enough for me. Um, and that's real enough for me to proceed from there. Uh, you've been you've been using some of the weeds in the Bunsaogangmu. <laughs> what is pretty real, I think, if you look at the the Bunsaogangmu, is I mean, there are some real drugs in there, right? There's oh, there, so for sure. marijuana. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. herbal ephedra, right? So, I mean, can you give us an overview of the original work? You know, what's in it? What are the delights buried inside Bunsaogangmu? So according to the author, I mean, all of the drugs that were mentioned, if they're described as drugs in this text, were actual drugs, right? The the question of how they translate or map onto um, modern pharmaceutical drugs is another kind of question, and other people are interested in that kind of question. Um, That's not so much what motivates me, but the kinds of things that are included cover both medicinal drugs and also just stories that interested him that weren't about how to make something into medical drugs. So there's some really cool stories he includes about crickets. And he says, you know, dude, this isn't actually something you'd want to use in medicine, but it's cool. And I want you to know about it. I mean, basically, right, I'm translating. And so here's some cool, important stuff about crickets. So the book itself covers everything from here's how to use different kinds of dew and rain and fire and ashes and bugs as medicinal drugs. And it goes up through different kinds of plants and different kinds of animals and all the way up to human body parts. So there are sections on, you know, how to use human skulls as medicinal drugs exactly all that kind of stuff Um, and you know people still study this book now and there there are lots of people who are interested in doing precisely the kind of work Jeremy that I think you alluded to which is to take the kind of discussions in this book and see how they might map onto contemporary pharmaceutical drugs and sort of do the kinds of tests that would translate them into modern bioscience. So that's not work that I do for reasons 
that are probably obvious, right, given the, the kind of engagement we've had so far. But it is a kind of work that other people are actively engaged in. It seems to me like the, the moderns have been pretty kind to Li Shijin, though, too. Uh, the word gangmu, right, which... which right has come to mean outline in Chinese taxonomy, in, in classification, which I assume is a sort of the post-Linnaeus system of classification. Gong and Mu are used for class and order. Mm-hmm. Do you know if this is like a nod to Li Shijin or I think actually it's probably... Li Shijin's use of that was a nod to earlier work. So ah, I don't okay. think this actually goes back to... Um, just to to Lee Jen. Yeah, I think he was actually referencing previous scholars who would use that in their title. So I think it probably oh, okay. goes back a little earlier. Cool. I'd, I'd know that if I'd read the book, probably. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> probably. I, like I said, I, I wanted to interrogate you a little about, about you know, yeah, the comparative cool. stuff, because I, I think it's irresistible still, even if it's not politically mm-hmm. correct. Uh, but Ben Gangmu was published, like you know, we said, at the end of the 16th century, and all the way on the other end of the Eurasian landmass at the same time. You had mm-hmm. Francis Bacon, you know, he was starting to make a name for himself in, in England, and Galileo was making all of his, you know, le- grinding lenses and making all sorts of astronomical discoveries. So it was the dawn, some would say, of, you know, what used to be called probably on fashion way. I don't know the age of reason. Just without getting into the the the, the problematic of this, uh, how did the state <laughs> of science compare at the turn of the 17th century in China and in Europe? I'm just you know indulging. Yeah. Me here. So I, no, yeah. I think one of the really interesting things, and one of the reasons um, that this period fascinates me so much, is that the kinds of Kind of approaches to trying to know something about the natural world, like the the earth, right? The nature on the earth, the bodies above the earth that we see in texts coming out of China. The kinds of approaches are approaches that we can also see in texts coming out of what we might, we might call like the European context at roughly the same time. So people were interested in moving from a reliance um, solely on stories that were, they were reading in texts and looking at the world around them and experimenting, um, if we can use that term with um, their own bodies and with the world around them to try to learn something about so the natural sort of world. Empiricism going on, sort of a proto. You can call it that, yeah. I mean, you can call it that. Um, you, if you're in, basically, if you're interested in the phenomenon of people struggling with or considering the evidence from their eyes and from their senses, right, to know about the world in relationship to evidence from books, you can see that that struggle, you can see that negotiation happening in Chinese texts in this period, and also in Latin texts and in other European language texts in this period. So this is actually, it, it doesn't have to be, right, a, an explicit comparison, but if you're interested in taking a more global history or world history approach to the history of what it has meant to try to know something about the natural world, um, you can have conversations that are legible and meaningful about similar kinds of problems with colleagues who work on, you know, the history of France or the history of um, Europe, uh, history of England. So that, that, I think, that stuff yeah. fascinates me. That that yeah, is so interesting. Super I mean, interesting. How this burst of, of intellectual energy directed toward sort of empirical observation of the natural world is happening in both these places. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Was the text known? In, in the West, was it available for, you know, for example, French scholars yeah. compiling encyclopedias yeah. in the mid-18th century? So, yeah, totally. Um, so this is actually something that's super interesting to me also. If you look at the later history of the text, um, parts of it get engaged by um, French Jesuits who write about it in the context of uses of ginseng and other medicinal drugs. 
Darwin actually references in one of his works material on goldfish that goes back to the Bensal Gangmu. Um, and there's like lots and lots of people in Japan who get interested in the Bensal Gangmu and translate it and kind of engage with what's happening there. So it's super widely engaged and translated after it's published in 1596, um, which is also a really, I think, interesting part of the history and, and one of the things that drew me to an interest in this text. That is so cool. I'm 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 going to pick this book up and read it. It's yeah, it really interesting. <laughs> uh, let's let's move on and talk a little bit about your podcast, or rather sure. your podcasts, since <laughs> you do them for multiple new books series. So let's let's talk first about the new books project. So yeah, uh, who who runs this this thing, uh, and how did you get involved, and how many of you recorded now? For God's sakes. Yeah, so um, so uh, Marshall Poe um, is the main producer and really kind of the heart and soul of the New Books Network. And a few years ago, he sent me an email out of the blue. I didn't know him at this point and said that some colleague, and I still don't know who this person is, um, had recommended me as someone who might host a new channel on East Asian studies, new books in East Asian studies. And was I interested? And at that point, um, when he sent me this email, I had no experience, right? I'd never done a podcast, didn't even know like what the medium was. I was still untenured at that point. Um, Luckily, I've gotten tenure since. But and so there was every reason for me to say no. And of course, I said, yes, this is weird. (laughs) This is exciting and terrifying. And I love it. And I'm going to do it. And I love reading books. And this sounds cool. So I got interested um, a few years ago in part because this seemed to me to be an opportunity to do a kind of work for books in the field that otherwise we don't necessarily have a chance to do, right? So usually when someone's reading your book and it's an academic book, um, the kind of feedback you get is in the context of a book re- book review. And a book right. review is very much like part of the larger culture of evaluation and judgment that academia is, right? It's about like, this is good, this is bad. Um, I'm going to you know discipline this and talk about the problems in, in a very narrow frame. And I wanted to help create a space um, to, in a little way, create an opportunity um, and a space of generosity in academia, right? Where we could be generous with each other, we could talk about a work after closely reading it in a spirit of celebration and and openness and generosity and trying to come to terms with and help appreciate this object that somebody who you're talking to has spent years of their life making, right? So how do we create a space for that? Um, And so this is for me what this podcast has been about. Um, They're hour-long interviews with authors who have recently published books in the field. And um, I started just with East Asian studies, but we didn't have a a channel for science studies at that point. Um, And so I pitched that to Marshall. He said, great, we need a host. (laughs) I said, okay, well, I'll do that. (laughs) And since then, um, I also host some interviews for a new channel we started called the New Books Network Seminar, which is devoted to interviews with authors of books that kind of transcend disciplines, right? They're kind of relevant to all of us, but not necessarily formal situated in a particular discipline. So that's oh. been really cool, too. I'll have to check that one out as well. <laughs> um, Jeremy, I mean, when, when Carl was talking about that kind of ge- space for generosity, I, I was reminded of, I mean, I'm often asked why we're not more adversarial um, on this show, <laughs> mm-hmm. why we don't really kind of go after our, our guests with gotcha questions and, and, you know, hold their feet to the fire. Uh, Do you get that question, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, I do sometimes. Usually it's on social media, not kind of people asking me face right. to face. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, sure, adversarial is entertaining, but there's not really enough people engaging a broad enough 
a group of readers and listeners about China in a sensible way. Anyway, I, I you know, I'm not interested in. Uh, starting <laughs> wars Fights, with people. Right. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd much rather they opened up and told me what they know about interesting things. I, exactly. I, I mean, we, we think of it as a platform for, for us to sort of draw people out and have them just present totally. their insights and their experiences. Totally. I mean, so much of our, I think, uh, at least for academics, so much of our lives are about being judged by other people and judging other people, right? That's the whole structure of the field. It's like, I think we yeah. can open up spaces for kindness, right? And uh, that aren't about that. And the more of us that do that, the more um, maybe we can start to change things little by little. And I think I see that happening a little bit. So. It's that viciousness of low stakes. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you're going to continue. Sometimes rude things do need to be said. Uh, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. But that oh, well, that's why we have yeah. you, Jeremy. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carl, are you, uh, are you going to continue as the main host for the, the East Asia uh, podcast oh, yeah. indefinitely, or what are your plans? I mean, any, uh, definitely indefinitely, right? So, I definitely have no plans um, to stop doing this um, or to not be the main host of this. But, you know, I can't predict what future me is going to be doing a year or two or five or 10 from now any more than any of us can, right? But I have no plans to stop doing this. And it's one of, it's part of my job that I really love. Um, So yeah, I have no plans or interest in stopping anytime soon. So I mean, just professional interest here. I I don't, Mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to tip your hand and maybe you'd rather preserve some of the mystery, but what kind of preparation do you do for a show typically? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, do you have time to read that much? My God, I don't yeah, know how yeah. you do it. Um, so yeah, no, this isn't, um, this isn't a mystery at all. I'm happy to talk about this. So what I do, um, preparation starts when I um, get the book in my hands, right? And there's lots of different ways that that happens. And we can talk about that too, if you'd like. But I have the book in my hands. I get in touch with an author, ask them if they're interested in talking. We work out a schedule. And as soon as that's set, um, I read the book really closely. So I make... Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll just keep it simple. I read the book really closely once and make notes on my copy of it. So I need a physical paper copy. Then I go back and um, take notes on a document that's organized by a table of contents of the book uh, based on my notes. And so I basically read the book twice, um, but the second time wow. is relatively quick. And then I use that resulting document, which is usually four to eight single space pages. And I um, highlight things and circle and star and basically treat it as a map of what might come up and what I might want to talk about in the conversation. Um, We don't get to usually 50% of that, (laughs) but it's there um, for me so that, you know, in the course of the conversation, it helps me organize that the architecture of that time. And so um, yeah. this is a map and not a script. I mean, because your conversations no. are very fluid. I mean, you're clearly not trapped into something really rigid. No, right, right, no. Right. And, and honestly, I think um, what one of the th- reasons I'm really interested in podcasting is that it's a vocal medium and it's a conversational medium. And I feel like having a script would undo that, right? I mean, it's, you're just reading text if you've got a script. This is just um, a map for me so that I can know sort of where to go next. So let's say I've taken notes and I know that in chapter three, um, um, the author has talked about how awesome dogs are, right, as pets or something. If in the context of talking about chapter one, dogs come up, then I know that I can jump to chapter three and sort of make that connection because I have my notes there. But no, I'm not interested in sort of um, reciting from a text in this medium because I just think right. that, you know, why? Oh, why it sounds bother? awful if you do that anyway, right? Yeah. And it's like not taking advantage of, you know, what the form or the medium is. Yeah. So. The free form nature of it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so Jeremy, can you read read your next question off our script, please? Yeah, <laughs> Car- uh, Carla, please, yeah. can you give us two or three of your? <laughs> Carla, could you recommend some some of your podcasts? So if somebody wants to get a flavor of it, you know, are there two or three shows that they should listen to oh, first? Yeah. I'll, I'll give you. I'll quickly give you more than two or three. I'll give you like four or five. Um, Perry Link, people mention that one um, often. That conversation oh, about that's his so book. great. I've heard that one. It's so good. Yeah, and that was really fun. Um, David Todd Roy, I, I had a chance before he passed um, to interview him about his work translating the Jinping Mei, and that was just a really wow. special experience. Um, and Dimian oh, wow. Wilkinson, yeah, um, so that was a really special one. Um, and Dimian Wilkinson talked with me about Chinese history Emmanuel, which was really cool. Um, I also really liked just um, just a couple more. Sherm Cochran was uh-huh. just super fun to talk about to talk to about his book. Um, Matt Summer, Jeff Wasserstrom, Will Buckingham, um, and and maybe I'll uh, stop just to kind of focus on the China related ones for the yeah, um, sake right. of this. Will Buckingham, I also um, highly recommend. He's uh, he's a scholar and a fiction writer, and he wrote this novel based on um, an engagement with the I Ching. So it's a novel. It's sort of a collection of short stories. It's more a cycle of short stories that are inspired by the hexagrams in the I Ching. Um, and I like that interview in particular because he does some readings of some of that fiction in the context of it and talks about, you know, how to use an engagement with China and Chinese texts to create work that's not necessarily academic work, but that's really thoughtful and speaks back to the text. And so I really appreciated that that's, one too. Yeah, that, that's a perfect segue into the, the next topic area that we wanted to bring up with you because, you know, you are, are, are definitely kind of innovative. You use, well, flat out fiction sometimes in, yeah. in the classroom and in colloquia that you do. I, I was looking through some old syllabuses of your syllabi of yours. And I noticed that there was a class that you taught at UBC like five years ago, which actually involved like role playing games oh, yeah, as an yeah, exercise yeah. in learning Central Asian history. And then, you know, you had like, you know, Flashman from George McDonald Fraser assigned yeah. and Gary Steingart's absurdistan. Yeah, and I, yeah. I was I was a Dungeons and Dragons player as Jeremy is never <laughs> want to let me forget. Uh, I was a Flashman fan, which I am never never ashamed to say. And I'm a friend of, you know, Gary Steingart's, uh, which is, you know, something I'm very indifferent about. Now. He's a good guy. Anyway, uh, what was that all about? I mean, what was that <laughs> what Yeah, that was I mean, so much fun. Okay, so how did I've... you get tenure? How <laughs> <No>, did <laughs> I get tenure? Seriously. Um, people <laughs> ask me that. Um, so I'm really interested in the syllabus as a creative medium, right? And I I think I really like um, designing the experience in a course as a kind of a way of building an architecture in time. So this was a class on Central Eurasian history that met for three hours a week, and half of that time we spent in a long-form role-playing game, and half of it was like lecture discussion. And this is I, I've, I'm really fond of this class in part because um, the student who played Rasputin and the student who played the Empress Dowager Tsushi just got married. So oh, like, then wrote me. I, so I, that, I fear for their, their I know, which is great. Okay, so basically what we did is um, the semester was separated into the, these three chunks, right? Representing three moments um, or sort of crucial moments in Central Eurasian history. And I had students um, read primary sources of their choice um, that helped them learn about or that were written like, by like, their particular like the curl character. tie of 1204. Exactly, like exactly. Um, so everyone came as a character that they had done research on um, and played that character. So we had a curl tie um, where we were deciding who was going to be the next con, right? So someone was... um 
uh, right. So someone played the con. Um, and we had these moments where there were debates um, in class based on these role, role play um, preparation and experience. And it was actually really awesome. I mean, it got them in, you know, like it got them <laughs> yeah, into the yeah, material. Yeah, yeah. I can see and that. it's really totally hard to teach Central Asian history, right? There's just so many things to keep straight that, um, yeah, so that was super, super fun. Um, yeah, and, and I've also the second one must have been the great game, right? I mean, since that's Flashman, right? Exactly. Um, we and did. And what was um, Absurdistan, though? What the hell? Yeah, well, Absurdistan. Um, so I really wanted, um, I really like teaching with fiction, um, and I write fiction as well. And um, so that was just um, to have a conversation, <laughs> um, a, to use that novel to open out into a conversation about, um, you know, that period of Central Central Asian history. Um, sort of more modern, and it it generated some really really cool feedback too. Yeah, so, I mean, so, I've heard some of the feedback. I mean, there's a friend of a fe- friend of a friend of mine <laughs> described me, you know, for for me, your your kind of non-standard approach to academia. Um, you know, you've really shaken up the old stodgy conference panel, you, you know, <laughs> art and literature, and you know, Manchu language yeah. tapes and um, and performance art. Uh, yeah. But he, you know, he 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 definitely said it freaked some people out, and he 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 told me that there was a <laughs> seminar. Um, that you did at his university, where one of his grad students from from China said, "But but 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 this is fiction." <laughs> I know, <laughs> that's and that's actually I think if you're really trying to shake things up a little bit and open space for, um, you know, unconventional approaches, if you're not getting some people nervous and generating those kinds of responses, it's not working. So I think um, more and more, the more times that I give um, talks on my work, I just gave a talk at Harvard on um, my work as a fiction writer, as part of what I do as a historian, more and more people are getting it. You know, they're, they're on board. I think there are more and more people who are interested in doing this kind of work. And less and less I get explicitly adversarial um, responses that are like, oh, good. what good. the hell are you doing? This is not history. But I still get that sometimes. Um, and that's totally fine for me. The kind of stuff that I do is not for everyone um, at all. Um, and I don't really want to be the kind of historian who is like kind of coasting in that comfortable zone and making trying to make everybody happy. That's just not who I am. Um, so why pretend, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I wish you know. I wish I'd been an undergraduate at UBC in one of your classes. That would be <laughs> a whole lot more fun than some of the old, yeah, straight laced old codgers I had. So, Carla, these days you're looking at narratives about herbs, drugs, and if I'm not mistaken, food as well, and how these are presented in different cultures and in different languages uh, by Manchus, by Chinese, by Westerners. Um, and how, how the translation uh, affects the retelling uh, of these things. What's your operating hypothesis about this right now? Right. So right now, actually, the work that I'm doing, um, I'm not doing work on Materia Medica directly so much right now. But what I'm doing is work that's on translation and also work that's on um, sort of Manchu engagement with and Man- the use of Manchu language to translate experience of and knowledge of bodies. So um, my uh, working hypothesis right now, um, frankly, is that multilingualism and translation were absolutely central to um, to just 
everything I'm interested in in the Ming and Qing periods, certainly the late Ming um, and sure, the Qing yeah. up to 18th, um, about the 18th century. And so a lot of the work that I'm trying to do right now is to open up what we're thinking about when we think about when we think with China to make sure that we're not just thinking about the Chinese language, whatever that is, right? Um, that we're thinking um, with documents and people and speech um, in Tibetan and Manchu and Mongolian and Uyghur and Persian and Arabic and just all of this, you know, rich linguistic tapestry um, and documentary um, archive that we have to understand the plurality of kinds of people writing about kinds of things um, in different languages in the periods I work on. So briefly put, um, I mean, I just, I'm trying to move the history of science medicine um, insofar as it focuses on China or engages with China away uh-huh. from an approach that t- takes for granted that when we're talking about China, we're talking about the Chinese language. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl and Nappy, we are in- incredibly delighted that you were able to make time to speak with us today. Oh, and it's I hope a that- pleasure. All you listeners out there are going to go check out Carla's work, um, but only if you promise not to abandon our podcast completely for hers. <laughs> We'll just have to do a new podcast together. Exactly. We'll do a crossover episode. Carla, you got to stick around and make a recommendation with us. Yeah? Sure. Oh, good, good, good. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SubChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at at SubChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChinaNews. On to recommendations. Jeremy Goldhorn, get us started. Okay, a website called Sounding Islam in China, which is subtitled Sounding Islam in China, a multi-sited ethnographic study. So um, Carla can perhaps tell us what exactly that means, but the site is... uh, (laughs) I can't. It has a sound map of China uh, with recordings of the Muslim call to prayer and other sounds from around uh, around Muslim China, essentially. Wow. Uh, And it's just uh, very interesting. Uh, The recordings, you know, go from Kashgar all the way through to to Beijing. Um, And uh, if you're into odd corners uh, of China research. This is one of them. I'm curious, Jeremy, how did you, how did you stumble on this? I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I, I'm a junkie, right? Like, so I get right. my feed of the internet, you know, f- one of the first things I do every day. So, right, uh, of course, me too. But, but it must have uh, been on Twitter or somewhere. I don't know. Uh, super cool. I will check that out right away. We love sound stuff. Remember when we did that Sounds of Old Beijing podcast, Jeremy? That was, that was a good one, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Carla, why don't you go next? So, yeah, Jeremy's is soundislamchina.org. And wow, I'll definitely check that out. What do you have for us, Carla? Sure. So I would recommend a book that's not necessarily about China, although it partially is, which is Anna Ting's The Mushroom at the End of the World. Um, Anna Ting is an anthropologist, and this is an amazing book for all kinds of reasons, but in part, I think it models what is possible as a result of working together in collaborative scholarship. And it's also just super interesting in terms of how it speaks to the Anthropocene um, and the different ways that history can emerge out of the natural landscape. Um, and it's super cool, um, relevant to food studies and natural history, and just it's it's amazingly written. So Anna Ting, The Mushroom at the End of the World. How do you spell her surname? T-S-I-N-G. Okay. And I interviewed her for one of the podcasts, So, and she's super awesome. 
Oh, cool. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is a regional, uh, I mean, if Jeremy and I are both new to the American South, him a little bit, you know, he's been here a little longer than I have, but uh, I've been making friends down here. And one of my new friends is one of the editors and publishers of a magazine called Scalawag, uh, which is a terrific collection uh, quarterly of writing from the American South. It's uh, got all sorts of stuff in it. I mean, uh, a lot of politics. I think politics is really its bread and butter. But everything from politics to poetry and some, I I imagine, some short fiction and some excellent photography as well. It's really, really helping me to sort of orient myself to the landscape here in my new home. Uh, And terrific, terrific writing. I mean, it's it's just top-notch writing. So, it's available online, or of course you can subscribe or donate, as I did to to their uh, their magazine. Very good stuff. Cool. Hey, so uh, that's it for us. I mean, I, again, Carla, what a pleasure it was to finally have you on the show. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk with you too, and this has really been a lot of fun. I really appreciate and I, it. I trust you're going to chat with us again. Yes. Good, for good, sure. good. Jeremy, also a pleasure. Uh, and yeah, thank you, you, Kaiser. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and Soraya Dorabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please go find us on the Apple Store or wherever the hell it is that you download podcasts and review them and give us a good review. Uh, and follow us on Twitter at, at Seneca Podcast. Jeremy's at Goldcorn. I'm at Kaiser Guo, K-U-O. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Take care. Bye.